I was trying not to cough. percent with Marcel Combs, my good friend and mentor. I'm Deantha Gratton and on this podcast she will travel a journey of leadership with each guest as she analyzes the ingredients that lead women to their current role. Marcel's goal is for you to walk away with tools to support your very own journey no matter where your current destination is today. Hello Deantha. <laughs> hey Marcel, nice to see you. It's good to see you. We have we have somebody fun today for the podcast. Yes, we do. We do. Yes, it's Alessandra Wall, and she is very much into problem solving, if you will, for women in leadership positions. Oh man, we we have done that too, haven't we? <laughs> We have, for sure. Truly, she uh, has been doing executive coaching and as a clinical psychologist degree, she really has earned a great reputation as a coach, um, in particular for women in the the highest levels of leadership, which really it's the C-suite that women... Uh, and men, truly, but they they look around and they don't have a lot of support. So she's someone who can step in and support them. Yes, I, I love her passion for it, Marcel. It's so needed in women with leadership. And uh, her her company's called Noteworthy. I love that name. You know, because it speaks. Great speaks to what she's going to talk speaks about. Speaks volumes. Well, let's go to to listen to what she has to say today. Okay. Welcome, Alessandra. We're so glad to have you on 50% with Marcel Combs today. I am very excited to be here. I cannot wait for this conversation. I think that it's going to be a great thing for our listeners. I would love for people to just get to know you a little bit by telling us your journey. You can you can just re- begin wherever you want uh, in that. It, from, you know, some people begin at birth because they're birth order makes such a difference in, in how they approach the world and other people have brought in mid-career. So do you just start wherever you want to and, and we'll just listen for a bit. Well, I tend to rewards being verbose, so I will not start at birth or we'll use our whole time going over that. <laughs> uh, what, what your listeners need to know about me is that like very, very, very many people out there I decided what I would be when I was going to grow up when I was a teenager. <laughs> and uh, and I just went for it. I did not stop. I did not consider anything else. <laughs> and by the time I was 25, I think, 24, maybe 24, I had a PhD in clinical psychology. I was doing a postdoc and I really thought I was going to spend my whole life being a clinical psychologist at the time, a child psychologist and loving every single minute of it. And I went into business for myself very early on and I fell out of love with my career within seven years. Oh, wow. There were aspects of what I did that I loved, but the big shift for me was becoming a mother Mm -hmm. and all this energy that I had to give to other people suddenly was being you know taken at home and the weight of being a psychologist they don't teach you 
that you're always on call. Unless you work in a big hospital or something, you're always on call. You're always thinking yeah. about people. You can't leave on vacation. There's no such thing as paid vacation unless you're working for a big organization or paid time off. It, and and so I, I tried to do, then the next thing I know many professionals do, which is to tweak your existing career to try to make it work. And it, things were better. I went from working with children to saying, I, it's not fun to have children at home and at work. So I'll work just with adults. I worked with anxiety, which is my area of specialty, loved it, tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. And I still found myself a few years later, literally wanting to run out of my office, screaming, do something about it. <laughs> and I was already blogging at the time. So my patients know this and it's not the way any of us want our therapist to feel in session. Uh, and then I had this huge quarter life crisis. I was in my early thirties. I had two children under the age of five and I had to figure out what I was going to do because I had never considered anything else from the time I was 14 or 15 on. Um, and I did what everybody and their mother does when they have a quarter life crisis. I became a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I tried to build a business that was as different as possible from my existing business. I wanted evergreen products, courses that people could take online. I had an Instagram channel, a Facebook thing. I was on, I had videos, I had a blog, I had opt, whatever. And I burnt myself out. I spent four and a half years making no money. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Luckily, I was still practicing as a psychologist so I could fund my business with my, with my psych practice. Mm -hmm. And I burnt myself out and I took six months off where I really sat there to think about, do I, do I pursue this coaching thing? And if so, how, or do I figure out how to leverage all my background as a psychologist into a corporate career of some kind? And I had two friends, uh, who were a couple, one was an entrepreneur. The other one was in the corporate world. And both of them agreed that, I seemed much happier as an entrepreneur mm. and I should give it two more years. <laughs> so I went back to the drawing board. I thought about all the things I loved doing, what I was really good at, who I wanted to do this work for. And I built the business I have now and I love what I do. And it's been years now and it is a totally profitable business. Mm. So much so that last year I did a soft retirement from my clinical practice. And this year, officially, my license will go from an active status to an inactive status. And that is the hard stop, fully retired wow. as a clinical psychologist. Wow. That's great. And your business today basically says it's executive coaching, right? You, I, I, again, when I was thinking about who I wanted to work with, I had spent so much time working with really high powered, effective, strong, ridiculously educated, ambitious women who were working three times as hard as everybody else for a fraction of the recognition, a fraction of the success. And those who had huge amounts of success were often very miserable. Mm -hmm. And I decided to rebuild my business to use all my background as a clinical psychologist, all that ed education and experience to help these women. And I very specifically now work with women in finance and STEM. So tech, biotech, biopharma, engineering, industries that I believe shape the world. 
mm-hmm. and shape the power dynamics of the world, but industries that are extremely male dominated. Mm-hmm. And I, I love, I love what I do. I love what I've built and it's taken a long time to get here. And it was worth every night of lost sleep, uh, all the years where I made in gross revenue. I love sharing the story because nobody in business ever talks about how little they made when they were starting. Mm -hmm. My best year, I grossed (laughs) 20,000. That was my best year. Below poverty level. I'm not totally sure. I was still operating as a full-time clinical psychologist and raising my kids. So I could, but as you could supplement business, yeah. I worked 60 hours. Like I worked so much wow. to build something that was going nowhere Yeah, and, and burnt myself out in the process. Hmm. And I, th- and I believe it is important to share those numbers because right. my Instagram, my Facebook, my website, which is beautiful. I learned how to code HTML. I learned <laughs> how you know, all the hex codes for the colors on my website. I've redesigned it so many times. Everything pointed to me being incredibly successful, mm-hmm. but I wasn't <laughs> at the time. Goodness. You know, one thing I want to explore a little more, you said that when you were working with adults, um, that your specialty was anxiety. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're particular seeing in young millennials and older Gen Z or really Gen Z is this huge anxiety crisis. And not only do they, um, do they have it, they label it and then they medicate. And I, and I think about these young women going into these roles uh, that that are being very successful. I mean, how do you help them? Well, first, do you see that? Mm-hmm. And second, how how would you help them work through that? There, I can tell you that in the time I practiced as a psychologist, we saw that uptick in anxiety and depression, and it's a really big problem that has a lot of prongs and factors. The 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 advent of social media, the, our, how much time we spend interacting with each other in 2D versus 3D, the discomfort with interacting 3D, the discomfort with direct actions. I have a whole theory about the fact that posturally, the amount of time we spend, if if for the listeners, I'm showing my profile. And if you look at the posture of most people nowadays, because of the amount of time they spend online, they're hunched over and caved in. And that is a posture of uh, failure and fear and self-protection. And we know that there's a feedback loop between the brain and the body. So when you smile, your brain starts to secrete serotonin, by the way, what is often targeted with a lot of antidepressant meds, dopamine also targeted with antidepressant meds, just from smiling. Whether you're happy or not, if you let the smile go to your eyes, these things get triggered. So when we when we maintain a posture that says I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a victim or I'm scared or I need to protect like my core, that has an impact. I really believe that that has a huge impact. I think the economics of it, it's, they're the first generation that will be less well off than their parents. Access to opportunities. And the world is a mess. 
So there are a lot of external factors that account for it. And they're very aware of what's going on. But I also think the problem is they have not been equipped to handle to handle their anxiety and their fears and the reality of the way the world is resiliently. So there's, you know, parents have overprotected their children. Um, they, as a child psychologist, I used to always advocate for boys being allowed to tussle because when you throw a punch at six years old and you hurt your friend, and you suddenly become aware of what your body can do in terms of pain, and you feel that terrible guilt at making your friend cry, you learn to be more mindful of your body when you're given the freedom to go explore the world, to do things that are quote unquote dangerous that we used to do all the time, climb on trees without somebody going, ah, it's so scary, or walk to your neighborhood park, you know, own, take some ownership, then you learn to weigh risk and reward, you learn what you are capable of, you deal with situations very young that are fairly safe, all in all, that prepare you as an adult to face the world more effectively. Luckily, that can be fixed. It can be addressed. We do a lot of mindset work at Noteworthy because if there's one thing that my career as a psychologist has taught me is one of the biggest barriers to success hands down, is, and to happiness or whatever, however you want to label success, is self-limiting beliefs. It's the stories we tell ourselves. Right? I'm not saying there aren't a ton of external factors that make happiness, success, safety much more difficult for some people than others. But your ability to handle those factors to go through it is massively impacted by the way you think about yourself in the world. I have a dear friend who is in a health crisis right now. And so I, I found myself just, you know, crazy tense over the mm -hmm. last couple of days. I think that's fascinating with our, I guess, how our body holds itself versus what that's telling our brain. Long ago, we, part of my company went and took, um, it was called the laughter club. Mm -hmm. And so you went and taught people how to force laughter and just the whole laughter thing, which is, which is true. If someone, even a fake recording of a laughter happens, you, you tend to laugh with that. Sometimes I find people so bizarre that from what they do that might be unacceptable, that they are hilarious because, you know, how did they come to that conclusion? I could never, how could a grown adult come to some of the conclusions they come to? And then like, for instance, in home health, a home care aide deciding they want to wear their bikini to see a patient, you have to laugh at that because how on earth? That doesn't mean that person still didn't get fired. But when I got told the story, I thought, how could a person come to that conclusion that the, just because they were on their way to the lake that they could walk in the house like this? Mm -hmm. Anyway, you know, that it has to be comical. When you look back on your life, did you have certain mentors who worked with you or encouraged you? I know you'd said that you had two friends who were in the corporate world 
that Mm -hmm. said to you, you seem happier as an entrepreneur than not, but were there other people who influenced you or helped you along the way? I, I would say yes to the latter and no to the former. So I actually realized that I never really had mentorship. I've had supervisors as a clinical psychologist. I've paid supervisors once I was actually licensed to continue getting that, that support and I guess mentorship, but it's a, it's a different relationship. Right. And I've had a lot of role models. What I've developed for lack of a mentor is what I like to call my personal board of advisors. So there are a handful of human beings out there who I have trusted enough to be very candid with about all aspects of my business. And that's saying a lot because I'm pretty much an open book. I think if they're skeletons, they should be out of the closet instead of in. Um, There's an incredible woman by the name of Steph Barry here in San Diego, who I met right before the pandemic. And Steph is just one of those people, everybody knows her. Like you don't know everybody knows her. She's not a celebrity. She's not a whatever, but she is just cares and is connected. And the name of my company, Noteworthy, comes from her. Because when I was redoing my website, I thought, you know, I'm going to be rebranding. Life in Focus made sense for a therapy practice for a life coaching business. But I'm not sure. I don't. And she just said, your mission says that you want to get as many women as possible to the highest levels of leadership and power so that it is no longer noteworthy. Why don't you call your business noteworthy? The other person I sent this to as another is one of my best, my best friends. And I, I refer to my best friends as my golden girls. I hope to be very, very old and wrinkled and still laughing with them um, to the point where maybe my bladder can't control itself, but it will be funny (laughs) because we'll be together. Um, And her name is uh, Danielle Baldwin. And she's a coach with Vistage and she's an entrepreneur. So all of the levels, the friendship, the fact that she understands my business, the fact that she understands what it means to build a business from scratch. There's a gentleman by the name of Richard Marks here in San Diego, who I was introduced to. And this is the beauty of social capital, just being introduced to random people. And he is, he's a friend at this point, but he was always just somebody who was willing to sit down with me and I with him to talk about what was going on. And then one more person, I mean, there's so many friends and people, but one more person uh, is the CEO of Athena here in San Diego, which is an organization that supports women in STEM. Uh, Holly Smithson, who from the minute I met her, she is like a she is like a Tasmanian devil of just energy <laughs> and positive energy. And she's excited and she is all there. And when she decides that she is with you, she is with you. It is all about just supporting and being there. So those, those four people, there are many more, but those are the four people who really, really, really made a difference for me, helped me get through big decisions, tough times. And to be honest, I hired coaches. I, I would not be where I am right now in my business. Had I not starting in 2019 decided to start working with coaches who could help me identify those fear-based beliefs, work through things, 
navigate difficult decisions, uh, create strategic plans, stick to said strategic plans, regardless <laughs> of pandemics and companies worrying about the great, you know, resignation or the economic like mess that is 2023. <laughs> I couldn't have we're done not, it. We're not talking movies. about that. <laughs> But yes, <laughs> and we're going into a political election. I so. guess. <laughs> and really, I think I'm already tired before it starts. So I have to ask this question because you said from 14 or 15, mm -hmm. you decided on this clinical psychologist. Now, how does that just bubble out of a 14? I mean, did were your parents in this field? So you did want the long story. I did want okay. the long story. Here's the abridged version of the long story. And nobody needs to feel terribly sad about this because I would not exist without this drama. Yeah. Right before I was born, actually nine months and a week before I was born, uh, I have a two-year-old sister who, she was two years old at the time, just turned two, who drowned. Oh. And I had, and so that really, really screwed with my family, right? Yeah. Like, and so I grew up in a household where, thank goodness, they were able to conceive me. I came out a girl. I was the golden child. Oh, but gosh. just like the grief of that loss, the trauma of that loss really, really shaped my life. And I watched people allow themselves to be defined by that trauma mm. for many, many years. I also watched my mom go to therapy and I watched her get better. And I watched how she calmed down and she became happier. And then I read Pat Conroy's um, The Prince of Tides and oh. watched the movie. Mm -hmm. I, right? I love that movie. So, I mean, it's a very tragic movie. It's tragic. Um, but I wanted to be Lowenstein, Lowenstein, oh. Lowenstein <laughs> in my big powered office with the gray 1980s power suit and the the pearls yeah. helping people right and this idea that i could empower people to work through their trauma whatever that is i didn't have the word trauma for it at the time so that they were shaped by the events of their life but not determined by those mm -hmm. events that, that I have the language for it now, but that was it. I really, it's, and it still drives me nuts that people give up agency and give up control by allowing, by believing that they, they, they don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a choice in what we're exposed to. We don't have a choice in what happens to us. We don't have a choice in the way the world is. We don't, but we do have a choice in how we handle how we face those things. And if we can understand that we have that choice and we're courageous enough to act on it, then we have a better chance of living a life that at the end of our life feels like it was worth living. Mm -hmm. Great, great thoughts. I, I've always thought, I, and I've had a lot of loss in my life, but you know, the loss of a child. I have five kids, just FYI, if you didn't read my bio, I have a whole litter of children, mm -hmm. you know, but the loss of a child, I, 
I don't know. She would be 47. I'll turn 46 this year. So she'd be 48, wow. 49. My mom still to this date will tear up and cry and thinking yeah. about it, not in some uncontrolled way, but she's just, right. she's just so sad. And my brother who was very close to her, who's older than me still, still as a grown man hmm. is shaken. It is, it is yeah. shaped his, his yeah. life. It is. And I just, every time my mom cries, I'm like, I just want you to remember that if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't even be born. You weren't planning on having any more children. Mm -hmm. The only reason I was conceived wow. is because that happened. So I'm like, wow. It, it's one of those things, but I love your statement shaped, but not determined. Is that mm -hmm. how you put it yeah. uh, by those circumstances? And you have to do a lot of work to get there. And I, you know, when I talk to uh, young women, it is a hard thing to work all the way from the beginning to where they are right now. I, I have a, I, I do some free mentoring in my profession, just, you know, and so I have an opportunity to talk and work with some young women in finance primarily. And, you know, it, sometimes you have to unravel a lot of things and I am far from a clinical psychologist, <laughs> that probably be, would have been nice tools. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, to just get down to how do they react, the way they react, and how, how can they work through that? Um, how do you, for yourself and help others, like really define success? Here's, here's the way I define success. Success for me is when you are clear about what right for you looks like, not just what's right. I'm a very good girl. I did what was right for many years, but what right for you looks like. And when you pursue that pragmatically, because you right for you has to match the world and the environment you're in. And when in achieving those things, whatever they are, those ambitions, those objectives, you have not done so at the cost of everything else in your life. So when we talk with the women at Noteworthy very specifically, one of the steps in our, in our process is defining what, what right for them looks like right now. What are the things that they need in order to feel successful and feel fulfilled? Then we can build a strategic plan and, and figure out what goals are aligned with those things. But we always talk about uh, building wild, like wildly successful careers that are also deeply fulfilling. And I tell anybody who will listen, if, the, if your success has come at the cost of everything else in your life, if you've had to sacrifice more than it's worth it to get there, if you're miserable at the top, I don't care what your title is. I don't care how much money you're making. I don't care how many followers you have. It, I don't care what those metrics, external metrics of success are. You are not successful. I, I think in particular, because I've gone through all the stages of, you know, life, basically, um, but it is hard for women who have a family, uh, who have chosen to have that family, but they also are choosing to have that career. How do you help them with with basically trying to juggle or get all the right? So you say if it's at the cost of everything else, but truly many of the women I talk to, they they really want both. I will sometimes say when they say, how do I not be so tired all the time? And I 
just say, I think there's going to be a few years you're probably just going to be tired. Um, so I, I don't know how to get beyond that. I, I know what you should say to burnout is that you should get adequate sleep uh, and rest and take care of yourself. But when you've got some kids, and you got this job, that's hard. You know, it's really, it's really interesting. So uh, first of all, what I would say to anybody, what I've tried to practice and note the word tried and practiced, right? So not always successfully is that once you are clear about what right for you looks like in all domains of your life, it is easier to determine where you need to apply your energy. Mm-hmm. I, I developed this way of thinking when I used to still be a psychologist and I used to see couples come into therapy And I would start with, I want you to create this list of your ideal partner and be exhaustive. I mean, if you would ideally want your partner to have green eyes and brown hair, then write green eyes and brown hair. And then we're going to look at that whole list of all the things. And we're going to talk about what are needs, what are wants, because the needs are important. There are a lot of people who confuse those two things. So they have a lot of wants. Their, their partner checks all these boxes on the want end of things, but not on the need. And then they're surprised that they end up feeling resentful and disappointed and angry. But if we can be clear about what your needs are in both areas, then we can make sure that those are the things that get prioritized above and beyond everything else. And it's easier to manage time. And what we find when you do that with life and with your career is that a lot of the needs overlap. I have a deep need, if we were to do this with my partner, I have a deep need to be with a man who is I feel is at least intellectually my equal, if not superior. Mm. Right. Um, there's this need for intellectual stimulation, but that doesn't just exist in my romantic life. It exists in my professional life. When I have worked in spaces where I've got it, I figured it out. I can do it in my sleep. I am the worst employee. I need to <laughs> constantly be intellectually stimulated, pushed just slightly out of my comfort zone. Challenged. So challenged. And when we understand yeah. that, then we can set it up. I also know that we all have to redefine. I I don't like the word balance because everybody thinks about this scale. balance. I do like the metaphor of juggling balls a little bit more. And this idea of you can only juggle so many balls at once. I mean, I know that there's those people who can do like 199, but the rest of us are like three or four. And so there is this constant need to evaluate which ones need to be dropped. When your children are toddlers, up until the time they start school, oftentimes the career ball for women gets dropped or picked up less frequently. That doesn't mean your career has to stall entirely, but it certainly slows down. And then when my kids are middle school and high school at this point, things can pick up a little bit more. And maybe the career balls are far more prominent. I'm, I'm holding on to them much longer. And the kids and the family just need to deal with the fact that I believe they're fully competent individuals who can prepare their own meals, get themselves back from school and deal with certain things like figuring out who they're going to go play with. It's not my job. Right. So, but understanding that and then being able to communicate it makes a huge difference. And you mentioned burnout and being tired. There's a difference. We're all exhausted as parents. It is exhausting. It is exhausting to open up your own business. It's exhausting at times to work in the corporate world. But burnout isn't just a function of long hours and too much work. Burnout is very, very much a psychological process. So 
-hmm. Think about the times where you have applied long, ridiculously long hours to something that you have loved doing. Yes, you're exhausted. Yes, you're tired. You absolutely need sleep, exercise, the right kind of nutrition and taking breaks. But when you think of the fog that comes with burnout, when you consider the the soul crushing weight, I don't know if you've ever been burnout, but it, it really like mm. simple things, getting your mail, answering an email, paying a bill, like all of those things just feel overwhelming. That is not just a process of working long hours. People have worked long hours since the beginning of time, since the dawn of time, it's the process of doing it in a space where you feel uh, that where there's no fulfillment or satisfaction. The end goal of what you're doing, the why behind it, the people you're doing it for, something there, there's a misalignment. Mm -hmm. Now you're working too hard towards something that does not, is not in alignment with who you are. That's how we get burnout. Just back to more of a specific, because you work with women in mm -hmm. STEM and leadership. How do you advise them? Because we know that, and, and this is a healthcare statistic, but uh, in healthcare, 23% less than men in their equal position. Mm -hmm. And depending upon the field, it's, it's all over the maps on that percentage. How would you tell someone to work through that issue when they, when it comes to light? Uh, we run into that sometimes. I bet you uh, do. More often than I'd want to, uh, <laughs> yes. really, in this day and age. Uh -huh. And it's it 2023, right? And so, I know. It is, it is so ridiculous <laughs> that the statistics are still what they are. Frustrating. Yes. And, and that they're so abysmal when you then start comparing, when you break that down, like women of color, women, which, which background, like it just right. gets worse and worse and worse. Right. Um, the first thing I will say is if you are negotiating a raise or if you're entering a new job and you know what the title of that job is and, and the industry, which you should know if you're entering any new space, try to find a man who you trust, who works in the same space and find out how much they make. And never, ever, ever accept to be paid anything less than that. Mm -hmm. If you have equivalent experience, background, education, knowledge, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have great male allies, they will come and tell you mm -hmm. of their own free will what they yeah. make. Nobody should be, this is not something that needs to be hidden. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's where we start. The other thing that I keep on being told by expert negotiators and by CEOs and people who've really worked their career in the spaces that women are terrible at hmm. even talking about money. So very often when it's women exhausting. are offered, that, that, that whole statement's just exhausting. I know, I know. To read it. Yes. I know, but it's, it's true, right? It's true. Like I know we get, we get offered something and the offer is good enough. Okay. And so we say, thank you because it's good enough. But what male and female hiring managers and negotiators tell me is that men very rarely just say thank you. They're like, this is a great start. Let's talk about and whether it's salary or other other aspects of compensation, they always ask more. So noteworthy, I always tell my women, I don't care how good the offer is. I want you to ask for more because what right. they gave you was the minimum they thought you would accept. Right. That's what they did and find out whether it's, we had one, one leader negotiate, um, 
she started with a 7% raise because it was internal and I really pushed her to negotiate more. She said no to me, but then one of her mentors said you should negotiate more. And the two of us in echo made her negotiate more. So she moved that up, but she negotiated a one month sabbatical, Hmm. which in her industry was not done. Like a full month, I'm gone, not, you can contact me. I'm out, out of the country sabbatical. Um, We have had people negotiate just either higher base salaries or time off or flexibility. There's always something else there Mm -hmm. if you know what matters to you. And then when you are in that space of finding out that a colleague makes something else, when you go to pitch for that raise, bring that information in. And if you weren't supposed to have access to that information, because Mm -hmm. I have one person I remember who came in and who, because of her function, had access to the pay scales in her company. And she's like, officially, I'm not supposed to have access. My boss knows I have access because this is part of the work we do. Officially, we don't. I said, I don't care. You have access. You know that this man is paid $135,000 more than you. Wow. I was like, <laughs> let's start negotiating. And I, and I said, you have to bring that as data. I am trying to understand. And, and I always approach things initially diplomatically for a variety of reasons. One is because the world would be so much better if we started with diplomacy. But second of all is because or the kindness, reality of maybe and kindness. Kind, <laughs> how about respectful, respectfully behaving? Yes, yes. right? And then yes. the other thing is, let's be honest. Respectfully behaving, yes. Not screaming, women, yelling, that whole thing. You know? Yeah, and, and the truth is, as women, if we come in and we demand, we will get far more pushback. And that is me being pragmatic, very pragmatically. I want to maximize the opportunity for success. And that means that there is a song and dance, which is an exhausting song and dance. And we can change it when we get more women in power, but there's still an exhausting song and dance to do. And so I might come in and ask a question. Hey, I'm trying to understand. I noticed that, you know, John makes you know, let's even say it's 50,000. I noticed that John makes 50,000 or $10,000 more than me. We have the equivalent rules, right? I'm, I'm trying to understand where the salary, the compensation difference comes from. And then count. Brene Brown says, oh, I think she used to give a number six or 11 seconds. It feels like an eternity in your head, but literally just <laughs> ask the question and keep quiet. <laughs> And watch it's the person the silence that bothers all of us, right? And um, I did say, why is it that he's making this much? That isn't fair. This is, you know, just, I'm trying to understand where this comes from. Maybe they have an excellent explanation. Maybe their explanation is, well, John negotiated that. And then you could go, okay, what would be the, step, what would be the steps that I need to take to negotiate a raise so that we don't have this gap between his pay and my pay? And it has to be part of a longer conversation most of the time where you're articulating your impact and your value. But I would say use that hard data because it gives you a moral framework for being able to argue why you should receive a raise and your compensation should be increased. So you've been doing this for a little while now, certainly doing lots of your other things, thinking about them since you were 14. But what inspires you today? What, what makes you get up and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
do this or what challenges you? Because you said you would love you love to be challenged just a little bit out of your comfort zone. I always think it's the idea of the project's the great. It's the next step that's always not so great. So, you know, very, very honestly, and this is where uh, to use the words of Mike Myers and old SNL shows, I get for Clint, but um, I, I am ridiculously motivated by the women I work with. I, you, I will get teary eyed when I talk about it. I can't, I'm one of those people I get teary eyed when I make speeches. I get like, I just can't help. So I'm getting teary eyed to the audience who can't see me right now. I, I genuinely love the women I work with. They, they have invested so much of themselves to try to build careers that feel impactful, that make them feel like they're making a difference, that allow them the freedom, the opportunity to live well, to help others live well. I genuinely walk into the office and find myself wondering what I can do to, to accelerate that process for them. So that is, that is a massive motivator. And somebody asked me the other day, said it must be so gratifying when you see, and I'm like, yes, it was the same thing that was so gratifying as being a psychologist. Mm-hmm. You'd walk, watch somebody come into your office who was suffering for years with something mm-hmm. and you know, you make a connection. That's important. It's not just about having the right knowledge or experience. It's about also, I'm very careful about who I choose to work with because it can't just be that I can solve your problems. We have to be a good fit and you have to be a good fit for my community. But when all those elements are aligned, you look like a miracle worker. <laughs> and and I did as a psychologist, I look like a miracle worker at times. People are like, I've seen all these therapists. They've never, and I'm like, those therapists were totally competent. It's not that, it's that we're a good fit. Mm-hmm. And you trust me and I can get you to do things that you wouldn't have done before. And I trust you to take action so I can push you. I trust you to take it. And it's the same thing as a coach. So those women motivate me. The other thing is purely, purely personal. I never thought until I had children that I really cared about being ridiculously successful, about the metrics of success, such as, you know, having a big company or building something to scale. There is something that happened when I had children. I did the opposite of what most people do. I was like, oh, this is not enough. I want more. I want to build more. <laughs> and I, it's exciting. It's like, it's what I imagine being an athlete. I, my sports were PE growing up, but being an athlete is I'm training towards something. I have this vision of this multi seven figure company that will And the money matters because A, it allows me to have the freedom to do what I want to do, how I want to do it. But it also allows me the freedom to build um, programs pro bono. And I want to launch programs in middle school to help girls find their voice. I want to launch programs for women who right now there is no way they could afford my fees or services. I want Noteworthy to become a household name so that when women are walking around in positions of leadership thinking, this is too hard, or I deserve more, or I'm at the top, but I don't know how to, like, I don't know how to leverage this, or I don't have the power to leverage this, that they know where to go to get those answers. That vision is terrifying. Uh, For many years, I didn't say it out loud, because, you know, I could totally fail. And it's maybe part ego. 
it is massively motivating and it's scary because you, we don't learn that. I don't, I didn't learn how to run a business in graduate school. Right. Right. Nor in nursing school, I might say. Right. <laughs> nobody, nobody teaches you this. We nobody learned teaches it. you that. Right. Uh, so I was interviewed by someone the other day and I said, they said, what would you do over? And you know, that's a loaded question because if it goes wrong, you don't have the same children, the same spouse, you don't have the same things. So you, you can't really ask for a do over for things you've, you, you're really better on the other side. But I said, it might've been nice if I had taken a business class. That yeah. might've been good. Uh, you couldn't have gotten me to one, you know, then to take one. So I always like to sum up and end with uh, your favorite books. They can be any books. Uh, they can be poetry. They can be fiction. They, what, are, what, are you, what are you reading or learning or listening to right now? Podcasts count. Um, so so I, lo I love reading. One of my favorite books, these are books that I hand out to uh, my executive rising clients. So one book is Cues by Vanessa Van Edwards. It is a great book that talks about the verbal, nonverbal, visual cues that we use every single day on a spectrum of warmth to competency mm -hmm. to show up and get people to pay attention, to hear us, to hear our message. It's a great book. If I have a woman who's way too far, it's not written for women. It's, it's a book about human cues and human nature. Yeah. If I have a woman who's very warm and who loses all authority, but everybody loves her, but everybody dumps on her, we'll look at like, okay, <laughs> here's some authority cues I want you to put in place. Yeah. Or somebody who's all authority and sure people trust her, but behind her back, they say nasty things or they don't yeah. like her or we can enter the warmth so that she can balance those things out same and again it's a book that's written for for men for women so vanessa van edwards cues is a great one for my men who want to be better allies uh good guys i would have to grab the book to look at the names of the authors right now it is a fantastic book that just for good men who want to be great allies talks about how to do it all the way from home from how you behave at home moving up for those of you who love romance novels, <laughs> book lovers. So the problem with owning a Kindle is, of course, <laughs> you never know the name of, um, you never, Emily Henry, book lovers, the best hands down romantic books, book, whatever that I've ever read in my life. Hmm. And then I am a huge fan of murder mysteries. <laughs> Now I want to hear this. So, well, they're all kinds. So anything yeah. by Tana French, she's an Irish author and she's got this Dublin murder squad series and <laughs> um, that's great and wonderfully well-written. And then I got sucked into the series right now by uh, <laughs> these two authors, Preston and Child, and it's the Pendergast novels. There are 20 books. I'm seven all the way through, and I have a, clearly a disease. When I start a series, I have to finish it. But I'm trying Girl, to read other I'm with you. first. I, this is, I just finished 21 books. <laughs> but mine's like espionage. It's the American uh, Assassin by Vince Flynn. I mean, 20, 21 I get books. It. That's crazy. I, I get it. I mean, I had to take a break from pen after reading the first seven books back to back. I'm usually working through three books or so at at any given point in yeah. time. I was just like, I should read something else. 
<laughs> right, right. I'll get back to it. I should read something else. Well, it's Alexandra, it has just uh, been a delight to have you on the show today. If people want to get in touch with you or want to know more about Noteworthy, how, how can they do that? Thank you so much for asking that. Uh, there's, of course, a website. It's noteworthyinc.co. The .com was such an expensive domain, so we just went with the .co, so noteworthyinc.co. And then honestly, where I spend the vast majority of my time and really update conversations is on LinkedIn. Okay. And my handle, it's forward slash uh, Dr. Alessandra Wall, so Dr. Alessandra Wall. Okay. Well, it's been wonderful to have you with us today, and I know people are going to just love to follow up and follow you on LinkedIn and just keep up with what you're doing, and I just appreciate that so much. Thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to talk about things that uh, move me. They matter. matter. I was moved today, and I appreciate that. Okay. Thank you.